Well, thank you for tuning in this evening as we have the opportunity to take God's Word and share with you. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. Romans 8, 1 through 4. I'll be reading out of the New King James translation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to take your word, divinely inspired, living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and through your Holy Spirit's leading this evening, Father, to take your word, to understand its meaning and apply it to our life. And Father, this Word tonight is full of hope and promise for us, and we thank you for that. And we just pray for each of us to be open to how your Holy Spirit would want to speak to our hearts and then apply this passage of Scripture. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart may be pleasing and acceptable to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most amazing sights in Jerusalem is the Western Wall, considered to be the holiest site in Judaism. You may have heard it referred to as the Wailing Wall. I found out when I was in Israel that this is considered a derogatory term by the Jews, and so it is not used uh, in their language. Jews and Christians alike from all over the world come to pray here at the Western Wall. The reason is because the Western Wall is the only remaining wall of the Second Jewish Temple, which was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. Therefore, as the Western Support Wall of the Temple Mount, it's the location closest to where the Holy of Holies was located in the Temple. Sitting atop the Temple Mount today is the Dome of the Rock. This is the gold dome structure in this photo taken from the Mount of Olives. And just about every picture you see taken uh, towards Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, the Dome of the Rock will be central. Some people think this is the temple. Of course, it's not the temple because the temple was destroyed by the Romans. This is an Islamic shrine built in the 7th century AD, and it's the third holiest site for Muslims. It was interesting to me that because the Temple Mount is under Muslim control today, Jews are not allowed. They're allowed to go there, uh, but they're not allowed to pray there. So that's why the Western Wall is so, is so uh, important to them. When we were at the Western Wall in January of 2020, I filmed this short video clip with my phone and just wanted to give you some idea of what it was like to be there. Now, of course, this is the, the Western Wall in front of those uh, you'll notice the, uh, the men in black and the black hats. These are Jewish, Orthodox Jews, and they come daily uh, to the Western Wall, and they pray and they recite the Scriptures, the Torah, the law, uh, the, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Old Testament. Um, 
You may notice they're, those that are, when they're praying, they're rocking back and forth. And some people wonder, what, what is this? It's called shuckling. It's from the, Jewish, uh, the Yiddish word meaning to shake. Some experts in Judaism think that the practice was historically done to exercise the body during study and prayer, which took up a large portion of the Jews' uh, time. Today, it's viewed as an exercise to increase concentration and emotional intensity as they read the law and pray. Now, we know that the Orthodox Jews have rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and they're still looking for the Messiah to come. They seek to obtain righteousness by their praying and reading the law. So it's a it's the salvation of works, being obedient to praying and reading and being intensely, you know, you, you have to admire their devotion and dedication, but it's a misplaced devotion. They're seeking to be justified, to be made right, righteous in God's sight through their reading the law and praying. It's a salvation by works. As Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, we are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest what? Lest anyone should boast. If we could be saved by our works, then if I was doing more works than you, then I could, I could boast that I was a more dedicated Christian than you. But thankfully, our salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on Calvary. When our scripture passage this evening, we find in these verses a contrast between the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus and the law of sin and death. Before we begin, I want to review some insights we gained from a sermon I preached a few weeks ago from Romans 8.1 that was titled, No Condemnation. You know, Romans 8.1 kind of lays the foundation for the entire chapter. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You may remember that the phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, was not in the original Greek manuscript, the oldest Greek manuscripts. And it was probably inserted later by a copyist who was seeking to make a smoother transition between verse 1 and verse 2. So in the original Greek, verse 1 reads, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember that the Greek word for no is an emphatic negative advert of time that carries the idea of complete cessation. So in the Greek, the verb communicates that there is not even one bit. My dad used the word smidgen. Not even one tiny smidgen of condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, condemnation here refers more to the punishment that a guilty verdict demands following sentence than to the actual verdict itself. Bible scholar F.F. Bruce described it as penal servitude. He said, there is no reason for those who were in Christ Jesus to go on doing penal servitude as though they had never been pardoned, never been released from the prison house of sin. So now with that brief review, notice with me, first of all, that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus equals freedom, but the law of sin and death equals bondage. Look again at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law 
of sin and death. Here we're given the first reason why there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ has set us free, free from the penalty and the power of sin in our lives. The word law here probably is better interpreted principle of operation with the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus referring to a, a life surrendered to and operating under the power of the Holy Spirit. Contrarywise, the law of sin and death refers to a life that is seeking to be justified and made righteous through perfect obedience to the law and to good works, which is impossible. Explained in another way, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is synonymous with the law of faith or the message of the gospel leading to eternal life. And the law of sin and death is synonymous with the law of works leading to eternal death. Concerning the law of sin and death, Bruce notes that even if it is not to be identified outright with the law of Moses, the law of Moses nevertheless stimulates sin and condemns to death. Turn over to Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians 3 verse 24, we read that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. People ask the question, well, if the law, if you can't be saved through obedience to the law, then what was the purpose of the law? The law's purpose was to be a guardian, a guide, a tutor to not only to the Jews, but to Gentiles as well. As a tutor, the law demonstrated the futility of attaining righteousness through obedience to it. And it pointed to Christ who perfectly satisfied all the law's requirements, our tutor to bring us to Christ. If you think about all the sacrificial uh, laws, what, when they would bring a, a lamb, it had to be perfect, unblemished. Uh, it had to be offered as a sacrifice for the people. There could be no fault in that lamb. And so it pointed to Christ who would come as the ultimate sacrificial lamb. And whereas the lambs in the Old Testament had to be offered over and over, a continuous process of shedding their blood to cover the sins of the people, the sacrifice of Christ was once and for all, never to have to be repeated. Turn to John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, beginning with verse 31, Jesus presented this explanation of freedom and bondage to a group of new Jewish believers. It says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Later, Paul would write, look over to Romans chapter 6. In Romans 6, beginning with verse 16. Later, Paul would write in Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, 
Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm reminded of Paul's rebuke of the churches of Galatia in his letter to the Galatians. Reading through the book of Acts, we see that Paul had founded churches in the southern Galatian cities of Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And after he established them, as was his custom, Paul would depart and go to other areas of the Roman Empire uh, to continue spreading the gospel. But as soon as he would leave the enemies of the gospel, the Judaizers came into the area and began to preach a salvation of works. That Gentiles must first become Jewish proselytes and submit to all the Mosaic law before they could become Christians. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul wrote, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. As we look on in chapter 3, verse 1, he boldly rebukes them saying, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh. No condemnation means that we have freedom, not bondage, in Christ Jesus. Well, next we see that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus equals strength from the incarnate Christ, but the law of sin and death equals weakness through our own sinful flesh. Here we see the second reason why there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus himself took the condemnation we deserved on himself when he came in the flesh. Verse 3 says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Although God's law was holy and righteous and good, according to Romans 7, it could not save men from sin because it was weak through the flesh. Dr. John MacArthur notes here that the sinful corruption of the flesh made the law powerless to save men. The law cannot make men righteous, but can only expose their unrighteousness and then condemn them for it. Now, when it says that God sent his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh, we know that it cannot mean that Christ ever sinned. Jesus was only in the outward appearance of sinful flesh, but absolutely perfect and sinless, holy and righteous within. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is a passage that many of us are familiar with. And it says, For he made him who knew no sin... To be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God 
in him. No condemnation not only means that we have freedom and not bondage in Christ, it also means that we have strength and not weakness through the incarnate Christ who equips us and who empowers us to serve him and to bring honor to his name. One of my favorite verses written by Paul when he was writing the book of Philippians, I remember as a, as a young Christian, I, I claimed this as my verse. Um, and Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, some people would say, well, Paul was bragging. No, he wasn't bragging on himself. He was bragging on Christ. He said, God has called me to do all of these things. I've been called. I've been equipped. I've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to all the Roman Empire. It's caused much tribulation. It's called, uh, it's called much distress in my life. But he says, no matter what I'm called to do, I can do all things, no matter how difficult they are, through Christ who strengthens me. A verse we should claim daily. Now notice with me that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus equals a life controlled by the Holy Spirit. But the law of sin and death equals a life controlled by our own sinful flesh. Verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, you probably noticed there, that's that phrase that the copyist had taken and placed in verse 1, but it's actually found here in verse 4. This is where it's found in the original Greek. Let's look at this passage. The word translated walk here refers to a habitual way. That is our lifestyle. It's the way we conduct ourselves in the world on a daily basis. The problem here is that many times in my life, and I think in all of our lives as believers, our walk doesn't always line up with our talk. And that's where our witness suffers. When that is the case, the gospel and the cause of Christ is hindered. That is, it's rendered ineffective. Now, I'm not saying that the power of Christ to save and change lives has been minimized, but only that our contradictory lifestyle as a professing follower of Christ has reduced our effectiveness to, inf to influence others for Christ. We must be careful. I remember when I first became a Christian and Janet and I really got involved in the church. I was 22 years old, um, had been raised in church, knew what it meant to be a Christian, but I wasn't born again. The Lord saved me in April the 2nd, 1978. But I remember I was looking for a mentor and I think mentors are important. I was looking for someone. Of course, I wanted to pattern my life after Christ. And I was reading the word. I was studying. I wanted to, to apply God's life. I wanted to be an effective witness. But I wanted a, a mentor, someone that I could watch and hopefully pattern my life after their walk as well. And I, I just seemed led to this man. We had a lot of common interest. And so began to hang out with him some. We played on the church softball team together. And um, I was really impressed with how he conducted himself. Of course, I didn't know him outside the church. I remember one day after about three or four months of our relationship beginning, I was talking to 
someone I hadn't seen in the community in a long time. And I told him, I was telling him about getting saved and, and how um, this particular person was, had become a mentor to me. And this man looked at me with such a shocked look on his face. And, and he said, now, are you sure we're talking about the same person? I said, well, I, I don't think there's another one. He said, you know, I've worked with this guy for years, and I, I never knew he was a Christian. And the way he conducted himself at work, I, I would have never thought that he was active in a church. That, as a young Christian, that, that knocked me for a loop. But, you know, it, it showed me how important it is that our talk matches our walk and that our, our way of life reflects a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You've heard me say it before. We are a witness. It's just a matter of whether we're a, an effective witness or an ineffective one. Where we're bringing honor to the glory of, to, to Christ or bringing him dishonor. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. There Paul wrote, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not, you do, not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. You know, the Jews saw Jesus as a, a threat to their religion that was based on the law, they accused him as, uh, of having such radical teachings, this salvation through faith and the necessity of being born again. And, and they saw it as his attempt to destroy the law. They would many times try to trap Jesus by asking him questions in public and seeing how he responded to those questions and see if it, uh, if it contradicted the law. One of those instances is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. Turn to Matthew 22, look at verse 35. Matthew 22, 35. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. No condemnation. No condemnations means that we have freedom and not bondage in Christ. It means we have strength and not weakness through the incarnate Christ. And it means that we can have a life controlled by the Holy Spirit instead of one controlled by our sinful flesh. This is good news. I pray that God will use the truths that we have learned tonight to encourage you in your walk with Christ. He's not called us to do anything that he's not going to equip us to do. And with his indwelling Holy Spirit, we are empowered to do whatever he calls us to do. And the witnesses, the witness and opportunities that we have, 
The Lord, if we're walking in the Spirit and trusting Him, the Lord will equip us to be an effective witness and use us to draw others to Himself. Praise God, for there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for that truth today. Lord, knowing that in you we can have freedom. We can, Lord, look at your word and the the life that you lived before us, the example that you gave us, the promise that you would send your Holy Spirit to indwell us and to empower us to do all that you have called us to do. Lord, that should encourage us today. Lord, we can trust in your Holy Spirit for everything we need. And Father, I just pray that as we continue in this new year that you've given us with the opportunities that are before us, Father, that we will realize what a great opportunity it is and how blessed we are with the fullness of your promises to us and the fullness of your Holy Spirit living in us and controlling us and leading us and empowering us. We thank you, Father. We love you. And we pray this prayer in thanksgiving in the name of our Savior and your Son, Jesus. Amen.